Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Beer and Money. My name is Ryan Burklow. And I'm Alex Collins. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about five lessons from the book Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. We've, I know I've, I've read this book actually several times, and it, it's a great book. If you haven't read it, definitely go read it. It, it really talks into, you know, really, as the book, the title is Psychology of Money, but more about experiences. It really gets into the weeds as to where we come up with the different um, thoughts and feelings around money and how our in our brain reacts or wants to react in certain situations, right? It's it's very difficult to to look at money in a non-emotional state. Yeah, it's one of the more emotionally charged topics, right up there with uh race, religion, and politics. So we're gonna dive into those five lessons. I th- I think these are huge lessons, but before we do, Mr. Collins, what are we drinking today? Uh, today we are drinking Cemetery Souls. It is an IPA, uh, and this is a it's a collaboration. It's uh, both Black Raven and Boneyard combining. Uh, clocks in at six point six percent, and the IBUs are at sixty. You know, I just had my first my first one. I love Boneyard. I love Black Raven. So uh, I think we were both excited to try this one, Alex. It is not as bitter as I would have expected it to taste. Yeah. And unfortunately there was a, some confusion and a mix up and I don't have that in front of me. I will have to go grab it and try it, but uh, I was looking forward to this beer. Yeah. It's a, it's a solid beer. It's not that when I say it wasn't as bitter, it doesn't mean it was bad. It's a solid beer. Um, IPA obviously is right up our alley in terms of that aspect. If I'm going to give this a, if I'm going to give us a bottle cap rating um, out of 10, I'll probably give it like a seven. So it's, it, I find this to be true in a lot of cases. I don't know about you, Alex. Like anytime I see two breweries collaborate, like I love Black Raven's Trickster, right? Mm-hmm. And I love the Boneyard IPA. But when they try to collaborate, like they just... it Sometimes it clashes. It clashes the wrong term. I can just... I would rather have the Trickster. I would rather have the Boner at IPA. Like the collaboration never produces their top IPA, in my opinion. I I totally disagree. Sometimes it, it, it depends on the collaboration, right? There have definitely been collaborations that I've had where you like you get the the best of both worlds and it, it mixes just brilliantly. Uh, other times, you're right. Clash isn't necessarily the right term, but like it's almost like. You didn't get the best of of uh, Black Raven or the best of Boneyard, and so it doesn't quite come off. Uh, but I've definitely had some uh, collaborations and some collaborations that involved both of these breweries before that that came off just brilliantly. Yeah, I love the can though. Cemetery Souls, like like this is a great can for the Halloween season. It's got skulls on it with looks like to be flames or oh, it's in the sea, so it's it's got like um. Weeds coming out of, out of the mouth. So definitely try them out. Like both of those uh, breweries are awesome. So try this out. If See, I would love to hear what our listeners think of this beer. So again, that is Cemetery Souls. Uh, it's the IPA collaboration between Boneyard and Black Raven. So let's dive into this. So Psychology of Money uh, is just such a great book. And every time I, I read it, I get another little tidbit out of it. Or even just it makes my mind even. Because you and I, we get to talk 
to people about their money and their goals. And we have to hear like how they've made decisions and what their feelings are. And every time I read this book, it reminds me of like certain meetings I've had with clients or like, oh, I could have spoken to this a little bit better. So I like reading this book just from maybe becoming a, a better advisor for our clients, but also to remind myself like, okay, money isn't as intuitive as you and I believe it to be because we do it every day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you work with stuff all day, every day, it it somewhat becomes second nature to you and you they there are definitely times when this gets hammered home. Um, I had an example of this like happened this morning where uh, a client was trying to do something and it was a hundred percent an emotionally charged reason and purpose for it. And it, it wasn't the right thing to do. Um, unfortunately they weren't able to go ahead and move forward with what they were trying to do, which wound up having some fortunate consequences of the client ending up doing the right thing. Um, but yeah, it's like money is challenging and it's especially challenging from a psychological standpoint and understanding when to do what and why and like getting to the bottom of why we think the way in which we do about money. And Morgan Hosel does a brilliant job of helping folks understand that. Yeah, so let's dive right in here. So, so number one, the first lesson from the psychology of money is getting wealthy versus staying wealthy is very different. And he's got this yes. quote in the book that that I captured here. And I, I love the quote. It's good investing is not necessarily about making good decisions. It's more about consistently not screwing up. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And it's so true because, right, like, you know, let's just face it. Getting wealthy requires a bit of risk and maybe more specifically consistent, consistency as Morgan pointed out. So that's how we get wealthy. But to stay wealthy is more about the risk management and preservation of the wealth. And that's a right. drastic difference. Like think about like when you're in the quote unquote accumulation state phase of life, right? It, it's it's about the consistent habits. It's about, okay, where should I be putting money? What risk profile can I can I stay with and not make an emotional reaction to? But then once you get to the top of the mountain, then it's kind of like, man, I worked my tail off and I and I I did such a great job of doing this. Now I want to keep everything. So now I, I want to I want to look at that risk management very differently. Well, and I mean, if we think about it from a like, I know that you and I have used the mountain climber example before, where climbing like everyone knows that mountain climbing is dangerous, and people put such a huge focus on climbing to the peak of the mountain. But the vast majority of accidents, injuries, death don't occur on the way up the mountain. They occur on the way down the mountain. And so like this just is another way of like building on that, uh, that example um, and saying like, yeah, once we've climbed the mountain, let's make sure that we have all of the proper risk management and preservation strategies in place. Yep. So that takes us to number two, right? And so as we're making these these financial decisions, in his book, he states, the decisions are justified. And essentially, he states, every decision people make with money is justified by taking the information that they have at the moment and plugging it into their unique mental model of how the world works. 
And th- this one is can be a little bit dangerous and a little bit uh, challenging. Um, it's one of those things where it's like, essentially, he's trying to help you understand that all of the decisions that you've made made sense in the moment, in the time, based on your set of skills and knowledge. And experience. Right. It doesn't mean that it was the right decision. It means that it was right given your unique set of circumstances and experiences and knowledge. Right. And we've all heard this before, right? Like when you're talking to someone and they say, well, I, I did X, Y, and Z, like outside looking in, you're like, okay, why would you do that? But then when you get to know the person and they start to share with you, well, what happened was, and they, then they tell you the story, then you go, oh, well, given that I may have made the exact same decision, right? So the, the decision is justified given the information and experience that they currently had. And we should all seek more information, better experiences, better knowledge to be able to make better decisions. Yeah. Having having a mentor, having a financial advisor, having someone you can trust that gives more background and information is huge. Even just having somebody to bounce ideas off of um, and trying to make it so that it's not like just somebody who's a, a yes person who's going to say, oh, yeah, that makes total sense. Or um, that they're not going to – they don't have a vested interest in uh, just saying yes to you for whatever reason. You want somebody who's willing, able, and capable of challenging you on things. Absolutely. So that's number two. Before we move on to number three, I just wanted to point out um, this beer is getting better and better, Alex. I'm going to (laughs) change my rating. It's now up to an eight. Cool. Uh I will have to rectify the issue and and go check this out yeah. and, and grab one myself. Yeah, every sip I have of this is getting better and better. So, um, all right. So number three, leaving room for error. And as Morgan states in the book, he says the most important part of every plan is planning on your plan, not going according to plan. Right? This, like this, is- this is just like real life, like. It's not spreadsheet. You know, we did, we recorded a, an episode on spreadsheet math versus real life math. It's very, what you plan never happens exactly how you planned it. Anybody who's ever been through a sizable remodel understands this. Like you need to set aside 10 to 20% for cost overruns and errors and issues and things that just pop up. Whether it's the cost of labor going up, the cost of building materials going up, finding something behind the walls that you didn't expect, any of this stuff, you have to have like a built-in contingency plan. This isn't saying make errors. It's saying to err is human and we need to make it so that like one error doesn't blow up your plan. Yeah, when it's and it's leaving room, right? Like you and I have recorded like I love this this line from him because you and I have discussed like emergency funds, right? I think too many people they're looking for what's the exact dollar amount that I need to have in my savings account because I'm really concerned about rate of return. Well, I had a client who like had an Excel spreadsheet that we were trying to spreadsheet their budget of like I, this was like 15 years ago and they had an income of around $250,000 15 years ago. And we were off by like less than a dollar over the course of a year. And they, the client then spent something like 
the next 35 minutes searching for where that dollar was and why it didn't add up in their spreadsheet. Yeah. And the, the whole point of this is, is we don't know, like, again, we don't know what's going to happen. That's going to cause something to go slightly haywire, right? Like how many people planned for COVID? How many people planned? I mean, just a couple weeks ago, by the time this is released, at least a couple weeks ago, how many people planned on Silicon Valley bank, right? Like, and maybe that affected you. Maybe that didn't, maybe that freaked you out. Maybe didn't. I don't know. But the point of the matter is, is having in this case, a savings account at the emergency fund that I brought up, having extra cash laying around in that moment of uncertainty, you become very happy that you left that room for air. Mm-hmm. Whereas when everything's going magically well, then you're like, well, I want my rate of return on my emergency fund, right? Like, and I'm not trying to mock the the rate of return. I know I'm even making the sound of, of mocking it. It's just more of, you have to look at it from the bigger picture. And we're focusing on such normally a small dollar amount in the grand scheme of life that it, it, it doesn't mean much. Okay. So instead of having your $50,000 in your savings account, right. And you don't want to have a hundred thousand dollars. Okay. So $50,000 with an 8% rate of return over a 20 year period of time is not too crazy. It's, it's not that consequential for your lifestyle 20 years from now. And I think that's where most people, they get lost in that whole uh, debate. And so having that, having leave, having that room for error allows for a ton of flexibility, which I think I think is huge. Which is the whole point that I'm that I think we beat the dead horse and, and brought across. So, anything to end on there, Alex? No, no, I, I was just catching up and doing the math on that. And you're right; like it n- numerically, it's like not an insignificant number. But if you then factor in like inflation and how big of a difference it's going to make in the person's like lifestyle over time, like not having the $50,000 of extra liquidity is almost certainly going to create a bigger issue somewhere along that 20 year timeline than the extra, you know, income that you're going to have from an eight, get having received an 8% rate of return over a 20 year time period on that money. Yep. Well, not to mention the fact that having that extra money maybe sitting there allows you to be maybe more aggressive or less emotional with other money. So that's not right. even in that conversation. Correct. All right. So let's move on to number four. And it's it's the question around, you know, what's enough? Right? Like, and and this is I'd love to hear your your what you think of this quote, Alex. In the book, he says, happiness, as it said, is just results minus expectations. Mm-hmm. I love it. And, you know, he goes on to talk about, you know, you know, what's really enough. It's very hard to put a number necessarily on that number. The, the, the point is not to figure out, okay, this is the exact dollar amount. This is the, you know, if you remember that, what was it? Uh, one of the, the big um, financial firms out there had to like carry. What's your ball, number? Num- what's your number? And it's not about determining what exactly your number is, but more around like, what is the lifestyle that you're looking for? Like, is your expectations greater than your income? And early on when you and I partnered, Ryan, like this was actually one of the questions that like, we didn't specifically come at it from this standpoint, 
And it took us maybe about six months to two years to actually like understand that like what's enough was different for me than it was for you. And it caused some friction in our partnership at the beginning of like, like you wanting, like going, Hey, no, 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 we got to push harder. We got to get to this, this number. And me saying, yeah, I'm comfortable with this other number. And so it, it caused some issues and it's important to make sure that like you and your spouse have these conversations that you're comfortable with it, that you actually have a thought process um, because more, while more is always good or usually good anyway. I actually, sorry, I'm going to disagree. More is not always good. I would actually say more is most of the time not good. Maybe like, I'd rather have like more, more time with your loved ones. Fantastic. Sure. Is more money always good? Hmm? Most of the time, I, I, I can, I can't think of too many situations where I'd rather have less money. It depends on what you're doing with the money, right? Like for sure. And I, I think that's where I was going with this is being specific around like, what is it that you actually want? I, I think we're coming at this the same way, just from different angles. It's, you know, D- Dine and I were just talking about this on our, on our walk the other morning and I asked her, I'm like, Hey, like from a lifestyle perspective, like we've, we've, we've gotten a quite a good lifestyle in the last couple of years. How much more lifestyle do we really want? Like if I started making $5 million a year next year, how much more drastic would, would we want to change our lifestyle? And, and don't get me wrong. If we made five more million dollars more per year, we probably would increase our lifestyle, but would it be drastic? And the answer to that question with what we were talking about is no. Like we're quite happy with how we currently live and, and, and the vacations and everything that we currently have. And that really solidified a lot in, in our financial in our finances in general, because now we know like we hit that point. Obviously we got to keep pace with inflation, all that kind of fun stuff, but all the extra money is just now it's just money. We can just set aside for our time later on. Or like see it do other things, whether that's charity or, you know, sending the kids through education or whatever else is desired or decided upon, but like having the ability to go ahead and not just, like increase inflation and increase lifestyle, which is going to cause bigger and bigger and bigger issues down the road. Like one of the things that you and I have talked about quite a bit on this podcast is that the, the num the percentage of people that succeed with fulfilling their retirement goals doesn't seem to matter whether they're a high income earner or a low income earner, because you still have to save a percentage of income. And oftentimes it's actually more challenging at higher incomes to be able to replace your full income. And so like the more that you increase your, your lifestyle, the more challenging it is to be able to replace that lifestyle when you get to or decide to not <laughs> And work. that's because it becomes more your responsibility, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because let's just face it, the lesser income you make, the more your social security replaces that income. Whereas when you're making... 250, 300, 500,000 dollars a year, you are now responsible 
for replacing the majority of that income. Like that's a drastic difference in planning. Right. You, there's also other types of structures and vehicles that become much more effective at the lower dollar amounts yep. than at the higher dollar amounts. Absolutely. Which takes us to number five, which is probably my favorite one. And we call, or Morgan calls it the man in the car paradox. And in the book, he talks about how he used to be a valet at a, at a high end hotel. And he used to be, he used to drive a lot of these expensive luxury vehicles. And, you know, he used to see these Ferraris pulling in, right? These, these Bentleys and Rolls Royces per- turning in. And those cars appealed to him. But then one day he realized he never really remembered who drove the car or what they even looked like. Right? He remembered the cars. He remembered the cars, right? So what he was really envisioning is he was envisioning himself driving that car. Mm-hmm. And how much and so this hit me over the head too, because it was like, okay, what things have I purchased lately or almost purchased? Really not for the benefit of me, but more of like for me to look cool in front of someone or me to flaunt money or whatever that is. Right. And I think many people do this without knowing that that is the case. And I, and I, I don't think it's a fault necessarily unless you're overdoing it. Yeah. I mean, like it, there's pros and cons to like all of this stuff. You can, you can use your money without flaunting it. And you can also barely use your money at all and like massively like flaunt it and throw it in people's faces. So like I've seen both sides of this equation. Um, So there's no right way or wrong way to do it, but just make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons and you're doing it for you as opposed to doing it for somebody else. So that, I mean, that that's what this man in the car paradox is doing is it's not trying to vilify any of the gearheads or the people who love super nice cars. If that's what you're into and it really like gives you that satisfaction and like it's your hobby or whatever else. Awesome. Like, and I know people that go to like good guys, car shows and like they, they, their life revolves around like hot rods and super high end cars and things of that nature. Awesome. But if that's not you, don't try to go do it just simply to like look cool. It, it, if it's what you value, great. But if you're buying it because you think you might look cool in it, th- that's when you have to question, okay, is it really worth it? And maybe it is, right? Like maybe it's a self-esteem thing. That's great. The question is, is how much of your money should be going there? Especially when we're, you know, when we see someone, I mean, how many articles have you read in the last couple of years here, Alex, where... <coughs> You know, someone making two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year is living paycheck to paycheck. Oh, a ton, a ton, and and it's common, and and it's common because these people, right, as they're making more money, they're spending all of it. And if they, if you really question, they're asking, like, okay, let's go through everything you spent money on, and tell me how much you value those items. Like, do you really care how much how much extra value did that that particular item bring you? All of a sudden, they could probably realize, oh, I could save a lot more money mm-hmm. because those items actually didn't mean anything to me. I was just keeping up with the Joneses or I wanted to flaunt my extra income or whatever it was. Right. So It was something like there was, there's a line that 
that somebody told me once that really stuck with me. Um, and it was, yeah, I was about to go do that because I was told that that was the next thing to do, or I thought that that's the next thing to do as opposed to like actually wanting or desiring whatever it is, whether it's, uh, fancy new suit, a new car, a new house, a new jewelry, uh, a new watch, like whatever the, the flashy blingy thing is like, again, if it's you and you value it, awesome. If it's not no big deal. And like you can't value everything. So just make sure like we've talked again, ad nauseum on this podcast about values and putting your money where your values are, sit down and have the conversation with your spouse, have the conversation with your spouse or your loved ones or whoever else and figure out what it is that you value and do that. And this isn't us pointing the fingers at people because I won't speak for you, Alex. I've done that. I've bought stuff looking back on it. That didn't mean really in the grand scheme of things, didn't bring me any value. I just wanted to look cool. Right. When, I mean, the only place that we have to go is back up to number two on this list. Your decisions are justified. Yep. And let's be smarter about them. Absolutely. Which takes us to the question of the day, Alex. Our question today is which one of these five gave you a little bit of pause? Kind of hit you upside the face and went, ooh, that one's me. I need to review or look at this. Or just gave you gave you some concern about, hmm, do I need to think more on this? So head over to beerandmoney.net, and at the top of the page there, there's a spot for you to hit contact us, and you can answer the question of the day. Or if any questions arose from this episode, you're like, hey, I'd like to have Ryan and Alex talk more into this topic or this question, it's a great spot for you to email us that as well. Look, we started this, this podcast wanting to talk about money so that we open up the, the taboo about it, enjoy a lovely beverage that we enjoy. Uh, in this case, beer, and and hopefully have you walk away with action items for your own personal financial situation so you can live the life that you want. As always, we hope this episode was valuable for you. And Mr. Collins, cheers. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice. Although the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities Guardian or Quantified Financial Partners and opinions stated are their own. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax legal or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. All investments and investment strategies contain risk and may lose value. This material is intended for general public use. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities LLC is not undertaking to provide investment advice or a recommendation for any specific individual or situation, or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact a representative for guidance and information that is specific to your individual situation. Brian and Alex are registered representatives and financial advisors of Park Avenue Securities, LLC. OSJ 200 Market Street, Suite 1850, Portland, Oregon 97201. 
phone number 503-221-1226. Securities, products, and advisory services offered through Park Avenue Securities member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representatives of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. Park Avenue Securities is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Quantified Financial Partners is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Park Avenue Securities or Guardian. Ryan Burklow, AR Insurance License Number 15319412. CA Insurance License Number 0K24924. Alexander Collins, AR Insurance License Number 7264699. CA Insurance License Number 0H24806. Pinpoint Number 2023-153120. Expiration March 2025.